0: Brincene, bringing you more reviews, recaps, and rants on all your favorite K-dramas. This is DramaBuds, an anima podcast. So hello everyone, welcome to today's episode of DramaBuds. After four years, it's finally back. We finally have season two of Arthur Chronicles. Disclaimer, I did not re-watch season one. Because it would hurt too much. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. The recast, really, uh, I remember that day specifically. There was a lot of somewhat devastating K-drama casting news that day. But this one really, really hurt me. But now that it's here, now that season 2 is here, well, you know, I was sad that I wouldn't see Song Joong-ki again as Unseom Ensaya because those were the only roles of his that I liked. Everything else after, I realized, maybe I don't like this guy all that much. <laughs> maybe it was just Unseom Ensaya. But, you know, Lee Jung replacing him, okay, that kind of soothed it a little bit. But uh, the Kim Ji Won recast was just devastating on all levels. I cannot believe I will never see her again as Tanya. My introduction to her, actually, my first role with her and just when I fell for her immediately and after that, it's just been hit after hit. She has never missed for me. And I can't believe I'm never going to see her again in this role. Devastating. So yeah, I'm just saying I did not re-watch season 1. But to anyone who's asking, oh, should I watch season 1 before season 2? Or saying, eh, I kind of don't want to watch season 1 for XYZ reasons. Well, <laughs> good luck to you, okay? You are putting yourself through hell. And whatever you feel about it, you earned that. That's what you deserve. So moving on, okay, who do I count on to recap and review the first season and emphasize the details and character arcs that I think are most important to the story. Who else but myself from two years ago? That's right. My, what was it, 14th episode was a one-hour review of season one and all the characters and even the world building and the lore, okay? So yeah, if you're looking for a recap, I mean, I would vouch for her. I would vouch for 2021 drama buds. She she made a good one. (laughs) But be nice to her, huh? She was very new to this business. But uh, I think it covered a lot of lore and world building that when I listened to it after watching the first episode of season 2, I realized, oh, oh, I I forgot that detail or oh, it's sad that that aspect isn't relevant anymore because that was so interesting. Anyway, okay, basic details on Arthur Chronicles season 2. The PD is the same PD as The Great Battle, the movie. The writers are the same writers as Arthur Chronicles season 1, of course, Six Flying Dragons, Tree with Deep Roots, Queen Sondok, and one of them wrote Jewel in the Palace. So these are sagok legends, I think. It stars Jang Dong-gun, who I've seen only in Season one Ok Kimok-vin, I've watched her in Love to Hate You and a part of Dark Hole. And the new leads are Lee Jung-gi, who I've seen in Flower Evil and Moon Lover's Scarlet Heart Trio. And Shin Se-kyung, who I've watched in Run On. So, Arthur chronicles the Sword of Aramun, but I just call it Season 2. It takes place eight years after the events of Season 1. So, Arthdal, which is now under King Tagon, calling himself the reincarnation of Aramun, we'll get into all of that later. Arthdal is at war with the United Ago tribes who are under Unsom, calling himself the reincarnation of Inaishindi. Telhas now the queen who wants to secure her son, Prince Arok's position, as the heir to the throne. Tanya is the high priestess of the Asa clan, and she's the head of religion in Arthdal. Saya is a general in Tagon's army, but he's working with Tanya and looking for Unsom so they can complete the prophecy of the sword, the bell, and the mirror, and defeat Tagon and destroy Arthdal as they know it. I think it would be better for me to talk about the characters individually, what I remember from them in Season 1 going into Season 2, and how their arcs are going now. And then general comments on the show after I've discussed each character. Let's start with Tagon. So, recap. Tagon is an Igutu. So he's a mixed-race child of a Saram and a Nianthal who, by the way, Tagon helped wipe out the Nyanfels through genocide, just so you know. You know, that's the kind of person Tagon is. And all his life, his father Sanu, who, by the way, he also killed. His father told Tagon to hide his purple blood because Igutus were seen as an abomination. They were seen as filthy, less than human. And after killing everyone in his way and claiming that he is the reincarnation of Arumun. Hesula, who is a god to them, and he founded the Arthdal Union. He claimed that he is the reincarnation of Aramun because he is now re establishing Arthdal as one nation and not three separate tribes in one union. So Arthdal is one nation and he is the king. So now they're at war with the Aga tribe led by Inayshinki, who is the famed enemy of Aramun. So isn't it so? faithful that both Aramun and Inai Shingi reincarnated in the same era, that Arthdal was also reborn into a nation. Wow, destiny is so amazing. But let us emphasize the word claims. He claims to be Aramun Hesula. I think the most salient character trait of Tagon this season is his insecurity and his instability, despite all his power and everything he's done to hold on to it. He has killed so many people, right? He has so many people who work for him and have fought this war for him, but his throne is built on, you know, on sand or it's made of paper or whatever metaphor you can think of. There are so many people who could betray him, even his queen and his partner and everything, Teala, who, you know, he loves her or He chose her and wants to be with her because he knows that she is just as self-serving as he is. But of course, that's a double-edged sword because he never knows when she could turn on him and he would understand if she did that because that's just who they both are. He doesn't trust Saya, his adopted son, who is also an Igutu and could expose his secret. He doesn't trust Tanya, of course, the extremely influential religious head of the nation who could easily expose him or, you know, turn the people against him. One word from her and they would believe her over him. But in a crucial moment when Tagon finally put his safety and his secret at risk by getting into a battle and fighting with Telha to protect their son. Which, by the way, I cannot emphasize how huge this moment is for him as a character because he would think that he would put himself and his secret and his purple blood above everyone, everything else. But maybe he cares more than we could ever think he was capable of. That he's actually willing to put himself in great, great, great danger for other people. Not out of ambition, because this definitely is not going to help his ambitions in any way, but simply because he's capable of loving and caring and fighting that hard? Really? Oh, the character writing. It's just phenomenal. Anyway, anyway, in that moment, he got injured and exposed his purple blood to everyone. And that was the exact moment that Tanya came out and decided to reveal that Aramun was an Igutu, and she declared that Igutu blood is sacred and Arthdol is blessed. That our royal family is a family of igutus. And suddenly, society doesn't see purple blood as shameful and disgusting. But even if the blood that he was ashamed of all his life and he was told to hide it, even if it was finally considered, you know, divine, it wasn't even just normal. No, it's divine. It's blessed by the gods. Our god himself is an igutu. Even so, he could not completely remove the the paranoia and, I guess, the internalized racism, all the shame his entire life, his belief that no one will ever accept you as an to The moment they find out, they will shun you, they will kill you, you will lose everything you have worked so hard for. And combined with, you know, the constant danger of betrayal and the feeling that he will be shunned by the people for the blood that he still personally thinks is shameful. He thinks people are just pretending but the truth is that they still want to shun him that he will never be their king because inherently he is an igutu and no one will ever accept that igutu. Well, given all of that, Tagon is losing his mind and I cannot wait to see how far down he will go. I cannot wait to watch him suffer even more. Next up we have Telha played by Kim Okvin. So, recap on her. When the Arthdal Union was split into three tribes, there was the Senyok tribe, which controlled the military, the Asa clan, who controlled religion, and the Hay tribe, who was the weakest politically, but they were the only tribe who knew how to make weapons. So, obviously, whoever makes the weapons, they also have some influence on the military. She was the daughter of Mihol, the head of the Hay tribe. And Mihol made her seduce Sanong, Tagon's father, to, you know, keep tabs on him and maybe if he falls for her they could secure a more solid political position for the Hay Tribe. But in the act of that, she fell for Tagon instead. And in their whole relationship, they have always promised to each other that they would prioritize themselves over each other. And they have fought their way to the top, knowing that they are equally as ambitious as the other person and their success, you know, kind of depends on each other. And now, her agenda is getting Tagon to officially name their son Arok as the heir to the throne. But Saya, who knows all of Tagon's secrets, is still vying for the throne because, you know, he's still the adopted son, or people don't know that he's adopted, but he's the son of Tagon, and he's a general in the army. He's contributing to the war, and Tagon knows that he can't completely write Saya out because Saya could do anything. We don't know what this guy could do. Someone on Twitter made an interesting parallel of Mihol using her to secure the Hay Tribe's position, and now of her using Arok to secure her position as queen. So you know, just in case anything happened to Tagon and no one would give her absolute power, she still had a foot or a hand in the ruler of the land. So I thought that was an interesting parallel. But okay, now that Tagon is losing his mind, how can she still maintain control over the throne? How can she protect the power that they've both fought so hard to obtain when Tagon is losing himself? There was this moment. I forgot which episode. But anyway, it absolutely gutted me. When Tagon was hallucinating and he was becoming even more paranoid, he was starting to see a vision of his father, you know, telling him to hide, telling him to not trust anyone, telling him that no, he's still shameful and disgusting and that he has to kill everyone who's in his way because everyone can turn on him. And in the middle of those hallucinations, he was saying that from the moment Tela was sent to seduce Sanong, she has been manipulating Tagon as well. That she turned him against his own father. That she drove the wedge between him and Sanung, And Tagon ended up killing Sanung and becoming the king. And all of that was just what Tela wanted from him. And she was going to do the exact same with Arok and Tagon. And he was already accusing her of that. So how could he possibly trust her? And her response was just, you know how dare you say that to me to me of all people of all the people that yes would do terrible things and could betray you but me after everything we've been through you know she she cries and she's shaken up by it but she can't like, get mad at him push him away you know sulk and whatever they don't operate like that because she knows that he's hallucinating and you know these are his deepest thoughts coming out of his subconscious But when he comes back to his rational self, that's her partner. That's who she's working with and fighting with. But this moment, this just hurts. And that's what I love about their messed up, toxic relationship. I love them for their toxicity. I love them for how terrible they are to everyone around them and also sometimes each other. But still, they are almost always on each other's side but also on their own sides at all times. I can't describe it. I just, I never know who they're really siding with. But always, you do feel that they love each other. They're so intelligent. They're so cutthroat and cunning and rational. They're so good at thinking on their feet and always thinking of the long game of all the plans that they've laid in front of them. But they're constantly fighting for or with each other, even if that would put their agenda in danger. And how could they say that they are not somewhat motivated by love And that, yeah, absolutely everything they do is for ambition. How could they say that when they're constantly putting themselves and their own ambition in danger to protect each other, to fight with each other? Oh, I love them. I really, really, really adore them. And what I love about Arthur's character writing is that they are objectively, you know, the bad guys, quote unquote. But they're given so much depth as characters that I can't help but root for them. And I don't care what that says about me. Mostly, I root for their schemes to succeed, but not for them to win, like, the war overall. Mostly because I know, or I think we all know, that Unsom's gonna win the war and all the bad guys will be punished somehow. Like, I mean, yeah, let's be real. But Tago and Tela, I want them to die a beautiful, tragic death fighting with each other, fighting for each other. Tela in particular used to be my number one character, according to my recap, but... She's been overthrown by someone else. She's been knocked off the podium. Moving on to the recasted characters, I have to comment on the new actors. Just just putting it out there, I have to do it because their portrayal does change how the character comes across. Hopefully, that can be explained by the writing, by the 10-year, 8-year time skip. And I'm trying to, you know, reconcile the change in actors and the time skip and and all the changes that these characters could have gone through over that time. I'm trying to reconcile all of that to make sense of this. So I'm being patient with the show. Be patient with me. (laughs) Okay, starting with Unsom. So recap on him. He grew up in Iark. So that's the land outside of Arthdal with the Wahan tribe. And although they knew he was strange and he was different from all of them, Unsom still felt at home with them. And when they were enslaved by the people from Arth, he promised to Tanya that he would come and free them. And, you know, he ended up fighting Tago and he experienced his cruelty. He knows that this guy is a terrible person. And he ended up getting shipped off to a slave camp and he broke free and then he met the Ago tribes. And the Ago tribes. The Arthel Union could not control them, could not enslave them as well. So they were just left alone, but these people were constantly at war with each other. And then Unsom survived some crazy test, going down a waterfall, and to the Ago people— only Inaishingi, our god, was able to survive that. You are the reincarnation of Inaishingi, who was Aramon's great rival. And so the Ago tribes agree to, you know, make peace with each other, come together under his command, and Unsom finally gains the power and the influence to fight against Tagon and honor his promise to Tanya and to the Wahan tribe. Now, to be honest, Unsom has always been my least favorite character. Because in season one, he was so far removed from the events in Arthal, because he was in the slave camp and then he was in the Ago tribe. And in general, I just see Unsom as, you know, typical hero protagonist that you're meant to root for. But I found characters like Tago, and Tela and Saya's cunning and their treachery so much more interesting. But I will say, I find Unsom a lot more interesting in season 2 because the years of being a leader who, you know, is, is he's inaishinji. He's larger than life to the Ago people. That made him more confident and it gave him an edge that he didn't have when he was still a slave, you know, being thrown around. And also, I have to say, Lee jung screen presence and the way he said that he studied the character from season one, trying to depict how that person has grown through the time skip. I really admire that work because I feel that. I feel that this is Unsom's growth as a leader. As someone who is not anymore an outsider just struggling to survive, he is now a full-fledged leader with an agenda, with a goal to defeat Tagon. Now, talking about the lore, I'm getting into the lore. So, by the way, if you are more of an expert on the lore than me, feel free to correct me because I am just going off the recaps and my memory of it. But anyway, talking about the lore, I never believed that Unsom was Ineshingi. Similar to Tagon claiming that he was Aramun Hesula to, you know, validate his claim to the throne, is validator right word. To give his claim more validity. I also thought that Unsom accepted people calling him ineshingi because it gave them something to rally towards. And he directed, you know, all their anger towards each other. He directed that towards Arthdal instead. And I guess a moment that I really adored in season 2 and, and really sold his character to me now was when Tanya spoke of the prophecy about the sword, the bell, and the mirror and how Unsom is Aramun and he's the missing piece that would bring Arthur down. But Unsom refused to accept it because how could he be both Aramun by fate but for so long he was in Aishingi to the people. And then Tanya told him, you know, some prophecy about Aramun finding a sword in the Zilkova tree. And that's when Aramun will find his mission. And a lot of things happen. Not spoiling anything, but just a lot of things happen. And when he was able to escape Arthdal and the old head of the Wahan tribe, Yondal, Tanya's father, by the way, who has really gotten sucked into the world and the politics of Arthdal. So Yondal gave him the first iron sword and told him that he was going to lose this war. When Yondal starts manufacturing these iron weapons for Arthdal, and he pushes Unzum away and tells him to stop trying to save Wahan. Because this is it. Let's end our journey together. Our fate together. Do what you do. You don't have to save Wahan anymore. We're siding with Arthdal. And after another battle, more things are happening. Lightning struck. Unsom, and the tree while he was holding that sword. And those are all the elements of the prophecy, right? And the writers themselves said this, but that moment in itself was meaningless. It was just a random sequence of events, and it wasn't some act of the gods, really. But it was Unsom who gave that moment meaning, right? Who held that sword and saw that tree and came from that confrontation with the Wahan tribe and was being attacked by someone who's very loyal to Tanya saying that he is a danger to Tanya. And he decided then that, okay... He will become Aramun and he will unite Ago and Arthdol through this war and save the people. He is the real Aramun and he is the real nation maker between him and Tagon, who was falsely claimed to be Aramun. And I like that about his character. I think Unsom in season one was just too, you know, he just floated around too much and was a little too naive and <laughs> annoying to watch. But now he's a lot more determined and I like that about his character. Moving on to Tanya. So, a recap of her character. In Wahan, she was meant to become the great mother, the shaman of their village. And as they were captured and enslaved, that's when Tanya discovered her power of prophecy. And side note, I still get chills when I watch that scene. You know that scene from season one of Kim ji and Astanya cursing Mugwang while they were enslaving the Wahan tribe. Watching this naive girl from this village being torn from her best friend, being beaten, all her loved ones, all the elders and the people that she's known all her life, torn from their simple world, brought up that cliff to be slaves. She was giving the most terrible, disgusting, horrifying fate To these cruel people not understanding the depth of her power. Not understanding that every word she was saying could be true. It could come true. She's that powerful. Yeah, Kim Ji-won's performance in that scene really, it's iconic for a reason. It's... We'll get to that later. Anyway, so yeah, Tanya discovered her power of prophecy. And when, yes, they were sent to Arthdal and she became Saya's servant and Tayla's spy, that's when she discovered more about the world of Arthdal. And while the other people from Wahan were getting sucked into the culture, you know, they were losing their simplicity, they wanted possessions, they wanted power, Tanya held on to Unsom's promise that he was going to save the Wahan people and they could return to their old world. But really, there was no no turning back especially when they discovered that you know this dance that she was taught to do her whole life was actually part of a ritual of the Asa clan that revealed that she was a direct descendant of Asashin the one who discovered Artha. And she became the head priestess of the Asaklan after Tagon killed their leader so that he could wipe out the previous holders of power and reunite the tribes as a nation. So in a way, she is kind of Tagon's puppet, but to the people, she is so, so important. She is their high priestess. She's so influential. Now, to be so transparent, I should just say this outright. It hurt when Kim Ji-won was replaced, but it hurt even more because I don't like Shin kyo I find her line delivery to be so monotonous. And that's literally my favorite thing about Kim Ji-won's acting and what that brought to Tanya's character. Like that iconic scene, it's really her line delivery that genuinely brought chills to me. I'm, I'm not kidding. And Tanya, you know, as a character, she suffered so much and she had so much fire inside of her. And that desperation to survive, you know, how she was able to stand up to Saya and Tera and Tagon, that was what made her so interesting to watch the fire in her. And just from the casting news, I already knew that I would not be seeing that aspect of the character anymore. Like, regardless of the writing, I knew that she would not deliver that same fire. And I was right. You know, I was right. But in the defense of Season 2 Tanya, she has been a high priestess for eight years. She's not a fish out of water anymore, she knows how Arthel works, and people have been looking to her for hope during this entire war. She's also grown into her powers, like both, you know, her political power, understanding what she could do and how influential she was, and also her psychic powers. And, you know, she still displayed some craftiness and some cunning by using people's desire to be safe and to be in good standing with the gods to collect donations and to make more powerful people feel like, oh, if you treat slaves badly, you will be punished by the gods. And so that's how she uses her influence to somehow do good, right? In her heart, she's still a good person who hasn't lost sight of where she came from and is still hoping to see Unsom again and is still hoping that he would come and save their people. And I don't know if it's just because of the recast that I feel like Tanya lost that fire that I was so in love with. Or you know, it, if it's really just the writing and the natural progression of her character being completely unbiased. I, trust me when I say I'm being completely unbiased, Tanya is the character I'm least interested in now because you know, she's just waiting for the sword and the mirror to come together so they could finally fulfill that prophecy and end Arthel. But I, I don't really see an active character arc for her. And she's not in danger of losing her position or power. Like, she's the only one who legitimately has a claim to what she's saying she is. She really is Asashin's descendant. So, yeah, there's really not much going on with her. Side note, oh my god. Can I just say, I've never been invested in Unso and Tanya romantically. So, the kiss? The kiss was weird. It was so weird, okay? It's giving Aang and Katara from Avatar The Last Airbender, where the romance feels like a reward for, you know, for him being a hero. And, yeah. (laughs) So if Unsom and Tanya are Katar and Ang, does that mean Saya is Zuko? Because he desperately needs validation from his father. And he's also vying for the throne. But he needs to break away from his father and to find his own destiny. Also, he's infinitely more interesting than the two, you know, hero leads. And I am, I'm so predictable. I'm so predictable. I have developed my preferences at six years old. And I still haven't changed them. Because, you know, Saya is also my favorite character. Anyway, we'll get to that later. Recap on what's been happening to Saya. So he was the adopted son of Tagon who Tagon found as a baby and he kept him in the Fortress of Fire where Teala hid him away. He's the twin of Unsom. So in their dreams, they've been seeing glimpses of each other's lives. And that's how he recognized Tanya when she was taken in as a slave. Together, they discovered the prophecy about the sword, the bell, and the mirror that were going to destroy Arthdal. And he is the mirror in that prophecy. But even if he hates Teala and believes in the prophecy that will destroy everything Tagon has built, he's still working as a general in Tagon's army and is still in the running to be the heir to the throne. He's actively out there trying to kill Unsom or fighting against Unsom's troops. Saya is so intelligent, so cunning, and he would not let go of any path to somehow rise to power, to get that validation, to get that from someone else. First of all, I gotta say, I miss pretty boy Saya. Saya was so pretty in season 1. But, I mean, I understood eventually that it was necessary to make him not pretty and to look more like a soldier so that they could do, you know, the twin switcheroo. They could parent rap and Saya. I mean, we had to do it. It's a story about twins. We have to do the switcheroo. And... Saya is now my favorite character because he's such a loser, right? He is inferior in every way to Unsom and the narrative keeps reminding him of it. Because Unsom is now a war leader who people love and would genuinely sacrifice their lives for. Meanwhile, Saya is a Nepo baby who is smart, yeah, but he still can't fight. And Unsom, you know, is a good fighter and is smart enough to lead. And to other people, Tagon sees Unsom as his greatest rival, right? He's in Haishingi. But to Saya, it only takes one defeat for him to feel like, yeah, Saya's out of the race to become king. Tayla, you know, has always been suspicious of Saya and has always wanted to get rid of him. And now that she has Prince Arok, she is even more motivated to kill him. Tanya first, you know, seemed like she cared about him. But then he found out that it's just because... He was the twin of Unsom. And if she had to choose between these two, you know she'll choose Unsom. Even if they haven't seen each other in almost a decade, even if she's been spending this entire time working with Saya, sharing the same goal, you know at the end of the day, she'd choose Unsom over him. Even in the prophecy itself, he is a mirror, right? Unsom is the sword who will fight, Tan is the bell that people listen to, and he is the mirror who will reflect others back. He has no power, no influence. People don't follow him because he's genuinely their leader. They genuinely believe in him and support him. No, they follow him because they're following orders. Unlike the real trust and power and influence that Unsom has or even Tagon has, you can say that people genuinely believe in Tagon as Aramun Hesula and fight for his cause because they believe in him. Genuinely, I hope Saya's arc is about finding his people and not about, you know, still being in the race for the throne or to get other people's attention. I genuinely hope it's, you know, him discovering that he could work with the Igotus or maybe the few Nianthals. Or I have a theory that he might be the real Inaishinki and Unsom is Aramun. That's my personal theory on what could happen because that still could make sense. And I genuinely believe he will find his place among the tribe of Igotus. I really think so. Now for my general comments on the show. Well, the first episode kind of put me off. Because it felt like, oh, we're just gonna get a typical power struggle saguk now, huh? Right? Just about war and just about them scheming. I miss, you know, the really character-driven stuff. But after watching episode 2, thank God that in episode 2, immediately, they went back to their old ways. Uh, the first episode was necessary just to place everyone you know, to to figure out where everyone was before it went back to the character arcs that I was looking for. And it just keeps getting better and better. I actually like that there are only 12 episodes. Yes, guys, there are only 12 episodes. We're halfway through because every scene feels back with info and plot, which I'm sure put people off from season one. And it's, you know, 18 episodes that are an hour and 20 minutes long. I mean, Kim won is a menace. He, he actually is a menace when it comes to runtime. But, you know, I didn't feel that personally. Season two feels tighter. I don't know. I just I just like it so far. I remember saying in my season one review that I loved how this show had consequences and people really could die. And Ha-ha, that's still true. People really still could die. Okay, I will nitpick a bit on the directing and stuff. I don't know how to explain this. You're going to have to try to understand me. But every room, every set feels three times bigger than it should be. You know what I mean? Is it because they're all green screen? Uh, are they not working with real sets? For the most part because every room feels too big. The camera, the shot is too wide. Uh, I just, I miss, you know, the darkness and the candlelight and all the tight cramped rooms and people getting up in each other's throats in season one. I, I miss, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm Kim Won Stan. <laughs> He's a menace but I really love what he did with season one and with everything I watched honestly and I also really dislike the hazy filter in the edges of the the screen I don't know and the costumes I don't like the new costumes and the new wigs like the budget, guys, the budget has really gone down, has it? I mean, they said that people complained about Season 1's costumes because, one, they're a bit too Western, and of course, that brought a lot of Game of Thrones comparisons. And two, they said, like, realistically, <laughs> wow, realistically, in the fictional land of Earth, this is in the Bronze Age, and they shouldn't have had the technology to make those textiles and stuff. And, okay, I guess if that's a concern to people, but the costumes look bad. But whatever, those are nitpicks. I can live with it. And the verdict is, obviously, I'm finishing this. I now have faith in these writers. And, you know, I, I trust that they fought to continue this drama in any way, right? Even with less episodes, different provider, you know, had to recast. Like, they just had to get this story out. And I respect that. And I'll stick to it. I don't know who to root for. Even if we all know Undum's gonna win because he's the good guy. but. The one who I actively root for, I don't know who. Because I just want Saya to experience some form of peace before he probably dies. <laughs> and I also want Tagun and Tela to, to die for each other and with each other. And I want them to die passionately. That's all I want. Unzum whatever. Do whatever you want. I know you're gonna win anyway because you're the good guys. Unless the writers prove me wrong. <laughs> I would be very intrigued if we don't get the typical hero wins the day kind of story. So that's it for me today. Wow, I missed talking about these characters. I-, I felt a genuine like passion in my heart talking about this. And yeah, this really brought me back to, you know, my early K-drama watching days. Cause this is one of those dramas that I felt the urge to talk about when I used to do one hour episodes. <laughs> Regularly, crazy times. Please tell me through the Spotify fly box, uh, what are your thoughts on Arthur Chronicles Season 2 so far? I don't know. I mean, I have not interacted with a lot of people about it because I've been yeah, trying to catch up. And I'm not as deep as other people are into the lore and everything that's happened. But, you know, I am relatively invested. I'm I'm really surprised that I remember this much about the lore and about the characters. But yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying season two so far. It's definitely still as unpredictable and as stressful as I remember it being. And that's the kind of stress that I enjoy watching. So that's it for me today. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you soon.